my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval. And check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. You're listening to Math & Magic, a production of iHeartRadio. We were in enormous, early out of the gate, financial difficulty. The company who I promised I was going to get their money back to, they were now concerned that they weren't going to get their money back. So they called me down with an ultimatum. Bill, if you don't eliminate tons of jobs, we're going to have to call in the loan and close you down. And I took a pair of keys out of my pocket. And I said, well, here are the keys to the company because if you asked me to cut my staff in half, we're going to close the company down anyway. So what do you want to do? I didn't know whether they were going to accept my bluff. They handed me the keys back and they said, Bill, we'll give you another year. Then I slowly started to turn the company around. Welcome. I'm Bob Pittman, and this is Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing, where we dig into those two pillars of successful marketing that are at the cornerstone of all great business successes. We explore this essential combination from many angles. On this episode, we're looking at building and evolving and never getting left behind. Our guest is Bill Koningsberg, the founder and CEO of Horizon Media. 
Bill was a budding tennis star who got sidelined by an injury and moved into advertising at an early age and quite successfully. By his mid-30s, he had founded Horizon Media, which grew to be the largest independent agency in the U.S., and an agency that leads, not follows, the new trends, ideas, and opportunities. Horizon did not get successful by being like everyone else. Bill is known for his drive to succeed for his clients and his interest in making Horizon a remarkably attractive place to work. He's wildly generous, too, always helping others and embracing important causes. He's had many honors, including induction into both the Advertising Hall of Fame and the Broadcasting and Cable Hall of Fame. And the best story, Taylor Swift debuted her 1989 album in a small performance on top of his building with the Empire State Building's lights synchronized to her music in the background. That's typical Bill. Bill, welcome. Thank you, Bob. It's a pleasure to be here. We're going to jump into you in 60 seconds. Okay, here we go. Do you prefer New York City or Miami? New York City. McEnroe or Federer? McEnroe. Instagram or Twitter? Instagram. Call or text? Call. Chocolate or vanilla? Big chocolate guy. Network or cable? Cable. Cats or dogs? That's a toss-up. We have both. Radio or TV? Ooh. Come on, think about where you are right now. Got to be radio. Of course. Of course. Right answer. Ding, 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 ding. (laughs) It's about to get harder. Smartest person you know? Bob Pittman. (laughs) Right. Childhood hero? Clark Kent. First job? Teaching tennis. Favorite TV show? Friends. Favorite TV show as a kid? The Monkees. <laughs> All-time favorite TV commercial? I love the Mean Joe and Green commercial. And obviously all the Geico commercials. Last Vacation? Barbados. Secret Talent? Opera Singer. Historical Idol? Einstein. First Concert? Grateful Dead. Greatest tennis player of all time? Rod Laver. Favorite food? I'm a big pizza guy. What's something we might be surprised to learn about you? Complete fear of failure. Mm. What's something you can't live without? My friends. If you could have one superpower, what would it be? Reading minds. I'm reading yours right now. <laughs> Let's start with you, pre-Taylor Swift, pre-Pitbull, and even pre-Miami and Horizon. Let's go all the way back to you as a kid. Born the day before Christmas, 1955. You grew up in Long Beach, Long Island, right outside of New York City. Can you paint the picture of those times in the world you grew up in? Born in New York City, moved out to Long Island when I was really young, probably three years old. Loved living in the suburbs, lived by the beach in a beautiful suburb, beautiful environment, but also a rainbow environment. Long Beach was a very diverse city. Understanding how to get along with different walks of life and different people, I think, carried through with me and is something that helped shape me today. But early on, I was a TV junkie. Loved watching television, loved watching commercials. And I was very fortunate because early on in my life, I kind of knew I wanted to get involved in advertising. And very few people know their passion early in life. And some people, by the way, never find their passion. So for me, finding it early in life was pretty cool. And obviously, that's been part of my journey for the last 40 years. Were you one of the first families to get a color TV or one of the last ones? We were probably one of the last. My dad rarely ever repaired anything. The shag rugs from the 60s are still in my mom's living room. (laughs) So they're now collector's items, by the way. We were late adopters in terms of all new technology. I think they just recently got rid of the rotary phones. (laughs) They still work. They do. Uh, Your dad ran a business. Do you think that had an influence on you as a business owner? So my dad had his own business. He was in the home heating oil business. I think it did have an influence on me because 
he always told me that you had a lot less security when you were working for somebody else. Being in control of your own destiny, good or bad, at least you were in control of your own destiny. So I think that shaped me a little bit from an entrepreneurial perspective. Did you ever go to work with him? Early on, his facilities were up in the Bronx. He delivered home heating to a lot of buildings in the city. My job, whenever I went to work with him, when I was 9 or 10 or 11 years old, was taking these white index cards and customers would fill out their name and their address and what kind of fuel oil they needed. And I remember sitting there for hours stamping these cards. Pre-internet. Pre-internet. Pre-computer. Oh, yeah. Pre-probably Xerox copying machine, too. Talk about your first job. You mentioned it was giving tennis lessons. Yeah. Other than early, early jobs, washing cars and delivering newspapers around the neighborhood, my first real job was managing a tennis court facility and teaching tennis. I was about 13 at the time. That sounds like the right age to be a manager. Yeah. Interesting enough, the gentleman who owned the tennis courts had an older son who unfortunately was mentally challenged. Part of my job was to watch over him a little bit. He would book the courts for whoever would call. So nine o'clock on a Saturday morning, we have two courts. 15 people would show up because he overbooked the courts. So I'd have to go sort everything out. So that was an interesting early lesson for me in conflict management. The second piece there that I learned very early on was an advertising lesson. There was a restaurant right down the block from the tennis courts. I wasn't making a lot of money. And I made a deal with the restaurant down the street that I put signage on the tennis courts for them in return for them giving me lunch every day. You started the first barter house. Forget Pepper Tanner. That's correct. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I did. So when did you start playing tennis and how? How did you go on that trajectory? Yeah, so my dad was a big tennis player. He grew up playing tennis, and I started playing tennis very early on when I was probably six or seven years old. It was very competitive. I ended up winning the New York State doubles. I trained with Harry Hopman, with people like John McEnroe and Eric Fromm. I went down to University of Miami with the aspirations to become a professional tennis player. Miami was one of the meccas of the world back then. For tennis or mecca for fun? Mecca for everything. (laughs) So mecca for fun, mecca for tennis, mecca for the beach. Yeah, it was great. I did something really stupid in college. I was late for class in my sophomore year. And in the dorm, there were these stairwells and landings, you know, about 10 steps and landings. And I decided since I was late for class, I could not have to take the stairs. I could jump from one landing to the next. And of course, I landed on the side of my ankle, broke it in about two places, torn ligaments. I ended up in a wheelchair for quite a while. You lose at least a half a step. And at that level, you just can't play competitively. So that destroyed my tennis career. So I understand that Miami you did your first ad campaign and got interested in advertising. Tell us a second oh about it. Oh, my God. How do you know that, oh, Mr. Pittman? We do research. You know, we do research you, know, you do a lot of great research. In the marketing major, they put together teams where you would compete against other schools. I was part of the team that competed for the statewide competition. And the first campaign we ever did was for the American Heart Association. And the tagline was, learn to live. We ended up winning the competition And it was a great experience about understanding how to pull off an advertising campaign. I also, through that marketing group, had to do a campaign launching a brand new product. And I still remember to this day, the product I launched was Country Star Granola Bar. I wrote my first jingle with actually a guy that ended up playing with Bob Dylan. His name is J.J. Jackson. You may have heard of him. He ended up writing my first jingle. Country, 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 country star granola bar, morning, noon, and nighttime. It's the best by far. Very catchy. catchy. Yeah. You can take that for free. 
So <laughs> you had this great transformation in Miami, and you're a big supporter of University of Miami. Something clearly changed you there. How did that school change you, and what course did it put you on? What college taught me and what Miami taught me was, one, how to get along socially with people. Number two, how to think. And immersing myself in the marketing area there at the school just reinforced my passion that I wanted to go into the marketing world. The school gave me a good, warm feeling that I could accomplish things. Maybe a little bit like you, Bob. When I'm interested in something, I jump into the deep end of the pool and I go all in. When I'm not, I can't give it the time of day. So I had some really awful grades in college, but the marketing class, I did really well in it. And that was my passion. Everyone has a breaking into the business story. What was yours? So actually, mine was really difficult. You know, I tried to break in. This was in the late 70s. The idols of the industry, the gods, were J. Walter Thompson and Young and Rubicon and Ogilvy and Mather and Wells Rich and Green and Madison Avenue and the days of Mad Men. And I remember getting out of school and I came back to New York and I would go into the city on Monday and I would drop my resume off at all of these advertising agencies. Tuesday, I would go home and I would call up these agencies to see if I can get an appointment and come in. Wednesday, I'd come back into the city and for six months, I couldn't get a job at one of the big agencies. In account management, they wanted you back then to have an MBA, and I didn't go for my MBA. And in creative, they wanted you to have a portfolio and some background. I didn't have that. And I hated math. So I didn't want to go into media, believe it or not. <laughs> hated math. So literally, I couldn't get a job. And then one day, through some connection that I had through my sister. Sister's boyfriend's brother? Yeah, you got it. My sister's boyfriend's brother. He was working for one of these very early media-only agencies, like a media buying service. Never even heard of them. The company was ELA, or Ed Leboff at the time. And I went in for the interview. And literally, they hired me that day and wanted me to start that <laughs> afternoon. And that's what happened. Did you start that afternoon? I did. And I figured that I'd get my foot in the door. And I would work for a couple of months, prove myself. And then I'd go to a real agency and get a real job. At that point in time, media buying services were starting to take share away from the traditional agencies and the company was growing. And as you know, I ended up being with them for about seven years and grew really, really quickly with that company and took on a lot of responsibility at a very early age as the advent of the media buying service was starting to come into its own in the United States. By age 28, you were vice president, director of broadcasting, managing a team of 150 people. How did you manage them? And did you learn anything from managing older people as a kid that shaped your management style? I was managing a lot of people older than me. Also, by the way, making a lot more money than me <laughs> and had a lot more perks than I did. But I was thankful for the responsibility that I was given. It was all about being authentic with them and gaining their respect and trust. I was a quick study and I knew what I was doing. But I was also a team player. In playing tennis growing up, doubles as a team. But I also was on a big baseball player. But I played a lot of team sports. And for me, it was about managing a team. And we were all in this together. Early on, I learned from a management perspective that if you don't get everybody moving in the same direction, I don't care how smart you are, you're going to foul. What did you know about media that got you such a big job for someone your age? You know, early on, I didn't know anything about media. But when I joined the company, there was another young assistant who I didn't like at all. 
he was always trying to show how much smarter he was than everybody else. He was always rubbing up against the senior leadership at the company. And it really annoyed me because I knew I was smarter than this guy, but he was getting everybody's attention because of the way he behaved. And for my competitive sports days, I wasn't going to lose. So he actually, this guy actually drove me (laughs) to become better and better and better. And it created this competition between the two of us, just like I was playing a tennis match. He'd like go a quarter of a mile. I'd go a half a mile. He'd go a mile. I'd go two miles. And that taught me about getting ahead and getting noticed and really standing out. And I was going to let this guy beat me. Wow. Stay in touch with him? No. Lost touch. Ages ago. Are there any foundations of media that you discovered way back then that you still use today? Yeah. The power of audio (laughs) and the power of TV works to drive brand and works to drive a business outcome. 30, 40 years ago, people were coming to us for positive business outcomes And that's the same thing they do today. And it's interesting, 40 years later, you think about everything that has transpired, but you know what? Audio and TV still work, even though the advent of all the new media that's out there, the tried and true of 40 years ago is still the tried and true today. Remember, reach and frequency. (laughs) It's funny how it still works. I also think that the imagination of the mind of what audio can do is probably more important today than ever before. And I actually think we're seeing a resurgence. I know we're seeing a resurgence, which is going to benefit all the audio players out there. Audio is the new media, and it's the future. We're seeing it extremely, extremely bright. So you know, congrats it, on, on what you're doing over at iHeart as well. Well, you know, it's interesting for us. I've spent a lot of time, as you know, on TV. You know, if I want engagement, I try and get some emotional attachment to something. As soon as you cast it and show a picture, you lose everybody. So sometimes there are instances with actually not having a picture allows us to have much deeper engagement. And I know you know that and have used it very well. You were doing so well back here at ELA. Why'd you leave? It's a fascinating story. And I owe my entire success in my career to a car. (laughs) If it wasn't for a car, I wouldn't be where I am today. So back then, the Mad Men days, having a company car was like the thing. And at the ripe old age of 28, 29, I was promised a company car. All the senior executives who were older than me had company cars. They came in one day, they said, Bill, you're getting a company car. I went out and shopped, looked all around, found the perfect car. It was one of the early BMWs. And I went to the president. I said, here are the papers. Can I get them signed? I want to get my car. And a few days went by and then a few weeks went by. He wasn't signing the papers. He comes in my office one day and he says, Bill, I'm sorry. I can't get you the car. The guy's name was Abe. I said, Abe, you told me I was getting this car. Here's a picture of the car. Here's the leather of the car. Smell it. Here's a sample of the keys. It's ready for me to go. He says, I'm sorry, the board won't approve it. I said, the board? But you told me I was getting this. So I was devastated. And you know, sometimes in life, you think that really bad things happen to you and you don't realize in later in life that if that didn't happen, something really good would happen. That's a great lesson. So I get a call the next day from a headhunter. And I was never going to leave the this company. Day. The next day. I was never going to leave this company. And the Hunter said, there's a media agency that's having trouble. They want to open up a New York office. They want to interview you. So I went on the interview. And the interview went well. And I asked them, do I get a car? <laughs> they said, yeah, you do. You do get a car. I said, great. I left. And I took the job and I got the car. Now, fast forward 30 years later. The guy who reneged on the car 
calls me and he says, Bill, I haven't seen you in 20 years. I hear you're doing unbelievable. You've built this amazing company. So I said, yeah, Abe, and I owe it all to you. He goes, what do you mean? I said, yeah, Abe, this is all because of you. He says, Bill, I knew I was a good mentor. And I knew I taught you. I said, no, Abe, it has nothing to do with you being a mentor or nothing to do with what you taught me. Had you never reneged on the car, I never would have left the company that gave me the opportunity to form Horizon. So thank you so much for reneging on the car. Just hold on a second because we've got so much more to talk about. We'll be back after a quick break. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure, I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic. oracle.com slash strategic. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Welcome back to Math & Magic. We're here with Bill Konigsberg. You jumped to Media General, I think it was 1984, as a senior VP. Now we get to the really good story. In 1989, Media General fought off a very tough hostile takeover attempt and decided to unload their media services business. I don't know how you did this, but we're going to get into it. 
you convince Media General to sell it to you and loan you all the money to buy it. I think everyone <laughs> listening wants to know, how on earth did you do that? Someone made a run at the company, they were publicly held, and they fought off the hostile takeover. And fighting off the hostile takeover, they agreed to get rid of some of their ancillary businesses. Media General owned TV stations, newspapers, magazines, cable systems, and they thought they can get in the other side of the business because media agencies were starting to become the flavor of the month. The holding companies were starting to break off and form their media agencies as well. And they actually first wanted me to try to sell this small little agency to one of the holding companies. I didn't want to do that. Remember my dad told me, don't go work for somebody else? So I wanted to take it over, but I didn't have any money. They made me go the rounds and go talk to a lot of the holding companies. And I went and talked to the big guys and some other players. And there was one player that was very, very interested. And I knew I never wanted to work for this guy. So I went to them and I said, you know what? I don't think any of these guys are the right partners. I don't think that you're going to maximize the value of this asset, even though it's not worth a lot right now. Let me buy it. Sell me the company. Not only will I get you a good return on that investment, but they had a bunch of contingent liabilities. And when they were trying to sell it to somebody else, those other parties didn't want to inherit those contingent liabilities. So it would have cost them money. So I said, I'm going to get you your money back. I'm going to take care of your contingent liabilities. Lend me the money and let me take over this company. They went to the board, a great gentleman by the name of Jim Lennon. Jim convinced the board to go ahead. He had faith in me that I was going to take care of these contingent liabilities. And they loaned me $11 million at an exorbitant interest rate to buy the company back from them and give me some working capital. And that's how I started Horizon Media. So there are two guys affected your life. One didn't get you a car, and the other sold you the agency so, for exactly. that. Exactly. Sold me the agency. It was eighty nine ninety, and of course, my timing was just perfect because the world hit a recession. Sure did. We had a really, really, really rough start. We had clients that went belly up, didn't pay me. We were in enormous, early out of the gate, financial difficulty. And because I wasn't astute financially back then, you know the term ignorance is bliss. Yes, I didn't is. realize how much trouble I was in. If I had known then what I know now, I would have handed back the keys and said, there's no way we could survive. But because I was ignorant, I just figured out how to kind of keep the place going and the check had to come in today to make payroll tomorrow. And the company who I promised I was going to get their money back to, they were now concerned that they weren't going to get their money back. And they had threatened to close me down and they wanted me to completely eliminate tons of jobs. And I know if I had done that, there's no way the company was going to survive. So they called me down with an ultimatum that said, Bill, if you don't do this, we're going to have to call in the loan and close you down. And I said, well, I might as well just do this. And I took a pair of keys out of my pocket and I went across the table and I handed them the keys. And I said, well, here are the keys to the company because if you asked me to cut my staff in half, we're going to close the company down anyway. So what do you want to do? I took a big gamble and I didn't know whether they were going to accept my bluff they handed me the keys back and they said, Bill, we'll give you another year, but we got to see some traction here. Then I slowly started to turn the company around. I've never heard that story. And I had that with MTV. Drew Lewis came in to head up the Warner Amex joint venture, which owned MTV at the time. And he'd come from Reagan's White House and he had been right. the transportation secretary who had fired all the air traffic controllers. So he walks in, knows nothing about MTV, doesn't know who Mick Jagger is, doesn't know who the Rolling Stones are. And he says, look, if you can't get this thing to break, even by the end of the year, we're shutting you down. Just matter of fact. Bye-bye. 
So it was that year of, well, I got to cut everything. How can I do it cheaper? How can we, how can we get another advertiser? And, and by the way, we like you survived and hit it, but it's sometimes those wake up calls really make you work harder. Do you think that kind of pressure it puts you under to save the company taught you something about clients, about managing, about cost? When you really believe in something, fight as hard as you possibly can for it. It taught me about survival. It taught me about how to keep employees motivated when things were not going well. It taught me about perseverance, not taking no for an answer. But it also taught me about being incredibly humble. Unless you feel the lows of the business, you're never going to appreciate the highs anywhere near as much as you can if it comes easy to you. And I believe that nothing comes easy. I mean, look what you've done at iHeart from when you first started here and the struggles that you went through with the organization and the reorg and how you've struggled early on, but you believed in what you were doing. And having that belief and being able to have people follow you with that vision and with that belief and earning their trust is golden. And I think those early days taught me so much about survival. Let me ask you a question. You own the business. You were the CEO. The buck stopped there. Do you think that causes a much different thought process than if you were the executive vice president of something at a really big holding company? Would you think this trained you for something that others can't get if their only investment is a paycheck? When you have no net under you and you're the owner and you're the CEO of a company and you've got so many people relying on you, I have the responsibility of not just 2,500 employees, but their families and their kids. You know, I feel I have the responsibility for five to 10,000 people. Being a CEO and an owner, I think bears an enormous, bigger responsibility because there is no one else to blame. You can't blame the shareholders. You can't blame the stock market. It's taught me about having a responsibility to everyone. Let's talk about that as it relates to clients. Do you think that kind of deep level of responsibility is a competitive advantage for you when you're talking to clients and talking about clients and being responsible for their business? I started a company 30 years ago. We couldn't pay anybody any money, and I smothered them in culture and love and inspiration. I built a culture of business is personal, and that DNA has been in my company for the past 30 years. That manifests itself with my client relationships. I think the clients feel different. They feel that attention. They feel that inspiration. They feel like new clients every day. It's more about the mantra and the ethos of how I built the company that I think makes our client relationships so strong. They know that the buck stops with me. I don't have to go through a board. I don't have to go through committees. I don't have to check off a dozen different boxes. And I think I can move faster and make smarter decisions because of that non-publicly held position that our company has. They're talking to the guy that makes the decision. You feel those decisions. You feel the emotion in your actions. That's always been my way. And I think my clients feel that I am beholden only to them. I'm not beholden to shareholders. I'm beholden to my employees and I'm beholden to them. If I make my employees happy, my clients are going to be happy. If I make my clients happy, my employees are going to be happy. And I think my clients recognize that. The air is clearer at a place like mine and they can see the way decisions are made And I think that makes a big difference. Just recently, we had an experience where a client called us and said, look, here's what I want to do. And we were told you can't do it. And my partner, Rich Bressler says, we can. 
we'll do it. We make the rules. Yeah. And I suspect in your place, you're able to do that on steroids. The rules don't get in the way of doing the right thing. And should you have a rule which is in conflict to doing the right thing, you just change the rule. Yeah. The rulemaking sometimes becomes quite interesting and quite fun because you do have the flexibility of doing whatever you want to do. And sometimes that flexibility is the greatest asset in the world. And sometimes that flexibility, believe it or not, is a little bit of a curse because why can't you do it? You got the flexibility. You don't have to go anywhere. Well, because it doesn't make any sense. I suspect it encourages radical honesty because you can't hide behind something. You can't BS someone. You really actually have to confront the truth and have the real discussion with them. Yeah. I mean, we built the company on authenticity and sincerity, diversity, inclusion, Go back to the early 10 years, the first 10 years. I was a student. I was a student of the industry. I was taking playbooks out of my competitors, what they were doing right and what they were doing wrong. I was just learning. I think the second 10 was more about starting to write my own playbook a little bit. And I feel we're now writing the book and leading the industry. You're smaller than the big agency holding companies, yet you continue to win big new clients and help your existing clients improve their performance through media. And I was going to ask you what your differentiator is, but I think you just told me that. Is there anything you would add to that? Well, when you say smaller than the holding companies, yes, the holding companies as a whole are global entities. But when you break down the pond that I compete in, which mostly is the U.S. landscape, in 2019, we were ranked the second largest media agency in the U.S. among all of the holding company media agencies. I hope that in 2020, we're going to be ranked number one in the U.S., And when you think about the fact that I'm competing against the giants of the industry. That's a very smart people. Little old Horizon could end up being ranked the largest media agency in the U.S. That is a testament to my people, to our smarts, to our dedication, to my clients, to everything that we've invested back in the business. And it's about 1% incrementality every single day. If you can make a 1% improvement every day, you know what kind of improvement that is after 365 days? It's a pretty good improvement. Let me ask you one more management question. You are not only a great manager, entrepreneur, business owner, but you're also a professional. I mean, you understand media and media buying. You're not some manager managing those professionals. What happens when you have one of your really great people have one point of view and you have another, and you've got all the votes and they've got one vote maybe? How do you deal with it? First of all, I love sparring. I'm saying that endearingly. I want people that are going to make me feel uncomfortable. One of my mantras around the agency is that I'm not feeling uncomfortable enough these days. I am flexible and I'm teachable and I am bendable. And if you ever get to a point where you don't think you're teachable, you're in trouble. And if you ever get to a point where you think you arrived, you're going to get run over. And I want to hire the smartest people around me who can make me smarter and make me think differently. I stand very strong on my opinions. And if someone is strong enough to convince me that I'm wrong... I will absolutely change. But they have to convince you. You're not going to roll over and say, I'm going to let you do the wrong thing to let you do it. And as a leader, and you know this, Bob, sometimes because you have such a big rearview mirror and you've seen every single problem, a lot of times you will make a decision just based on that experience quickly and firmly before someone has an opportunity to tell you their different point of view. And I try to be very sensitive to that. Even though I think I know the answer going in, You still have to open up your mind. I was in a meeting two days ago that I was not very happy about because someone was making me feel very uncomfortable with what they were presenting to me. And then I had to remember, I had asked my people to make me feel uncomfortable. (laughs) And I had to say, you know what? Even though 
this is a surprise to me. And even though you're asking this from me, it's making me feel really uncomfortable. And that's what I've asked you to do. I appreciate you doing that. And I'm going to trust you. We talked about culture, an overused word, but in your place, I know your company and I've walked through your space. You really do live the culture. How do you define the culture at Horizon? Work and outside of work are becoming intermingled together in today's 24-7 world. So we believe in what we call the third bucket. You get your salary, a bunch of people get bonuses, and we probably have over 100 different extracurricular activities that fall into the third bucket. That's about traveling to a foreign country and helping people who are less privileged than you are. It's about building homes in different places. It's about a limitless advancement program for women. It's about Upstart You, an entrepreneurial program for people who want to start their own businesses. It's about having six or seven different diversity and inclusion groups within my organization who can meet as a community. It's about treating our people with respect. It's about giving people a voice. It's about giving back. We built that culture over the last 30 years, and that culture is the heartbeat of our company. I think people feel that. I have 2,500 employees. Every month, I write an anniversary note to every single employee. And that's about a commitment to our people and that you matter as a person. Wow, that's impressive. So tell us a little bit, because I know it relates to your culture, about your physical space, the physical workspace. You have, for those people who have not seen it, such special space with this great outdoor rooftop. We started out with the Taylor Swift story, but the key to it was your unique space. Talk a little bit about how you imagined that space and what you intended for it to do for the company. Early on in my journey, I was worried about survival, but I couldn't afford a great work environment. I actually didn't think it was important, believe it or not. In 2008 and 2009, when the world started to fall apart, my leases were coming up and I was in four buildings in New York City And I started to feel that environment started to mean a hell of a lot more to people and how people wanted to work from a community perspective. I could have renewed my leases in three or four different buildings in the city, and we decided to look around. And Tribeca was not what Tribeca is today. And we found this amazing, beautiful old building. But then I got the price tag of what it was going to cost to completely renovate and build the office of the future. It was a $30 million investment And I decided to take the plunge. That was another big fork in the road. And we built out offices with beautiful terraces and a theater and a health center and a big gym and a yoga studio and sleep pods and meditation rooms and open space. And I want everybody to enjoy the view, see the sunsets and have the light. That's the environment that we created. And I have to tell you, Bob, it paid off tenfold from a retention perspective, from a new business perspective from attracting new employees into our space to someone like Taylor Swift wanting to do a concert up there to film companies left and right coming in and wanting to film in our space, commercial production in our space. It was one of the best decisions I ever made. I never realized how big the company was because we were in four buildings in New York City in really not so pretty space. And one Saturday I walked in and I'm walking around this space and I'm going, holy shit. Look at the size of this company because we were never all in one space. And it was an amazing epiphany for me. And it scared me a little bit about how big we had become. And the thought process all along was to build a home, not an office, but to build a home. And I think that's what it's become. You really do invest in people. You invest in bringing the best out in people. 
you run probably the best summer intern program I've seen. Talk a little bit about what the thought was behind it and what the key elements of it are. I never had the benefit of being part of an intern program growing up. I wanted to build the best intern program that ever existed so we could attract the best and the brightest back into our company. So the philosophy was there. If you're going to do something, go the extra mile and build out the best you possibly can. There are probably a thousand that apply and the number gets bigger and bigger and bigger. 40 actually make the intern program. These 40 kids in college, you know how many followers they have on their own social feeds to these days? They have thousands of followers. So the first person I ask when I go into the room and I talk to them beginning of the summer and I say, how many people am I talking to? And they call around the room, oh, there's 40 of us. No, 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 no. I'm not talking to 40 people. I'm talking to 30,000 people because of all of your connections and all of your social influence. And if you have a good experience here, you're going to tell everybody about it and they're going to tell people about it. So to me, it's about the multiplier effect of understanding the impact you have on one individual and the impact that that can have on the multiple other individuals that that person is connected to. So let me talk about media. Data came along, digital came along. I was at AOL in the 90s when we sort of introduced all this. It's gone to crazy extent of the data we now have available on customers and attached to media. Most people sort of looked at it as a silo, okay? And there's radio and TV, and then there's digital and data. You were one of the first people to say, wait a minute, I know radio and TV are effective. That data actually is going to change how I use them. How did you come about that sort of thought process of, doing it a little differently. 30 years ago, I started the company. Clients came to me for positive business outcomes. And today, that's the same thing. The difference is, is today we can prove positive business outcomes by the use of data. When you think about the consumer journey, every brand, every category has a different type of consumer journey. Data is leading us every step of the way in terms of how we interact, where we interact, the type of interaction, the type of content that needs to be produced. Data is at the epicenter of what we do. It informs every decision we make. And now it's all interconnected. And you don't own a data company. We don't. We believe that you can rent an enormous amount of data today as opposed to being beholden by owning your own data. We have a data solutions group that is taking in data from dozens of different platforms. TransUnion is one of them that has a database of over 300 million individual IDs. So we're a big believer in the democracy of data and taking in data solution inputs from dozens of different places to help us inform the decisions that we have to make day in and day out on behalf of our clients. So I want to talk a second about you. You have used your brains, power, connections, finances to help others. You have shared the four A's, helping the industry. You've helped University of Miami a lot, helping kids who might like to be like you. City Harvest, Center on Addiction, the Reisenbach Foundation are all boards you sit on. And indeed, a few years back, Ad Week and their profile of the givers listed you as one of the top 10 from the world of media, marketing, and entertainment. What's your philosophy on that? Giving back is part of life, and we teach it early on at our company. We have Horizon Gives Back, where people can get involved in dozens of different philanthropic causes that are near and dear to them. I built my company on brand purpose, and now many companies are leaning into brand purpose. I also feel that I'm so blessed to have grown up in this industry in terms of what I've been able to create. 
that you always have to give back. That's been in my DNA early on. So many causes that I'm involved in, City Harvest, Feeding the Less Fortunate here in New York City, Centers for Addiction in terms of the ridiculous opioid crisis we have in this country today and what's that doing to the future generation, to dozens of other charities that we support and pro bono work that we handle, including organizations like the Michael J. Fox Foundation. And I go to sleep at night every single night knowing that I'm helping a lot of people less fortunate And I want everybody in my company to think that way as well. And if they don't, then they're not at the right company. Let's do some advice here before we leave. What advice would you give to somebody who wants to get into advertising? Call me. (laughs) What advice would you give to your 21-year-old self if you could? Make sure that you enjoy the passage of time. That was actually a line in a James Taylor song. He said, the secret to life is enjoying the passage of time. In those early days... I sacrificed a lot to build what I built. And a lot of people ask me sometimes, was the sacrifice worth it? And I still come to the same conclusion that I think it was. But I think I missed out a lot. So what you're saying is, if you had known you were going to be successful, you wouldn't have worked so hard. That's absolutely (laughs) correct. (laughs) Here's the hard one. What advice would you give to other agencies? You know, we have a problem right now in this industry, Bob. There's a problem with diversity. There's a problem with bringing talent into our industry. I kind of feel like it's Groundhog's Day. There's a problem, I don't think with my company, but with client trust in the industry. There's a problem with the way the dynamics of the industry are working from a financial perspective. We need to continue to prove our value to marketers as an industry. We need to bring the best and the brightest into this industry. And I think that is one of the biggest possible pitfalls that we are facing as an industry. We can't lose out to Facebook and Google and Amazon and those other players. We need to have the best talent. So as we wrap up, we always give a shout out to the best in math and magic, to those from the analytical side and from those that are wildly creative, the showman of the business. Who gets your shout out as the greatest math person? The greatest math person. Oh my God. That analytical thinker. I got to come back to you on that one, Bob. That's a tough one. It will give you a buy on that one. Give you a buy on that one. How about the magic person? Well, on the magic person, put personality aside from an inventive perspective, Steve Jobs. He's gotten it a couple of times already. Bill, you are an inspiration to all of us in marketing and advertising. Thanks for being here today. I loved it. Thank you, Bob. Here's a few things I picked up in my conversation with Bill. One, don't back down when you know what's right for your company's future. When Bill's financiers wanted him to fire half his staff, he stood his ground and ultimately came out on top. Two, being the owner and CEO allows you to make decisions quickly and efficiently, but it also means you have to invite your employees to challenge you so you don't get tunnel vision. Three, physical space can not only define your workplace culture, it can determine your business future. When Bill made a big investment in new offices, his company thrived. I'm Bob Pittman. Thanks for listening. That's it for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening to Math & Magic, a production of iHeartRadio. The show is hosted by Bob Pittman. Special thanks to Sue Schillinger for booking and wrangling our wonderful talent, which is no small feat. Nikki Etor for pulling research, Bill Plax and Michael Azar for their recording help, our editor Ryan Murdoch, and of course, Gail, Raul, Eric, Angel, Noel, Mango, and everyone who helped bring this show to your ears. Until next time.
from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. 